Hey there, and welcome to Beer Branding Trends, conversations on building stronger craft beverage brands. Kodo Design has spent more than a decade working with craft food and beverage artisans, helping them to brand or rebrand, reposition, and reimagine what a compelling F&B brand can be. This show captures all of our fieldwork and experience into practical strategies, tips, and tactics to help you build a stronger brand and sell more beer. I'm Isaac Arthur. And I'm Cody Fay. And this is the Beer Branding Trends Podcast. Hey, Cody, what's up? Not a lot, Isaac. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and I'm excited because in our last episode, we had an overarching conversation on our 2022 Beer Branding Trends Review, and today, we finally get to answer community-submitted questions on that piece. Cody, are you excited? Isaac, I am on the edge of my seat. <laughs> no, I, 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 am, I am legitimately excited. It's fun to have such great questions. And it's also fun to know that we're going to be talking about things that people want to hear. <laughs> yeah, we should probably start doing this more often on the show <laughs> itself. But <laughs> for the listener out there, you can find this article in the show notes. We'll put it there or at kododesign.com. This is our yearly roundup of everything we're seeing that's shaping beer and beverage alcohol from our corner of the industry. So that is as a branding firm helping breweries to rebrand, extend their brand, and bring new products to market every single day. This is our... What would you say, Cody, our macro to micro view of what's going on in beer in the broader beverage category today? So over the last week and a half, we have received 23.5 questions. That half question was one guy writing in with the word skulls with three exclamation points. Yeah, I, I don't know if that counts as a question. I, I wondered briefly if it was maybe a threat, some sort of battle cry. <laughs> You know, I hadn't even considered that, actually. That's upsetting. I will call it half a question and hopefully not a threat. So anyway, 23.5 questions, and we're going to tackle about half of them today. And let's just get right into it. We don't need a, a long preamble. Okay, first question comes from Aaron. We'll be releasing a hard seltzer later this summer as a brand extension under our brewery's name. I think I have that definition right. We don't think this will hurt our brewery's brand. In fact, we expect that it will work really well. But we're wondering about the seltzer itself. Is there any downside to branding it under our brewery's brand and not as its own thing? We already have plans for future flavors. If that's relevant, thanks. All right, into question from Aaron. I'll just quickly jump in here and say that, yes, Aaron, you do have that definition right. A brand extension is when you use your parent brand name in another category. So I won't say your brewery's name here in case you haven't announced this yet, but that would be like XYZ Brewing Hard Seltzer. Cody, uh, what do you think for Aaron here? You know, this is something we've really had to sort out through working on our new book. Yeah. It should be out later this year. We spent a lot of time focusing on how to protect the equity and sort of the perception of the parent brewery brand. So in your example, XYZ Brewing, mm -hmm. how will an extension like this seltzer example in the question reflect on the brewery? Uh, will people be confused by the move? Will they be thrown off? Will they start to wonder what the brewery itself stands for? If you put this new thing out, it really depends case by case. So it's tough to say without knowing, you know, from a positioning standpoint, the goal is to occupy a clear space in people's minds so just to give an example, say XYZ Brewery is renowned for their loggers, right? And they really focus on logger. When, when people in the mar that marketplace think of logger, they should think of your brewery. That's kind of tough to do with 9,000 breweries out there, admittedly, but it should be the goal. And, you know, maybe logger is not the best example, but your brewery should have positioning of some kind. What do people expect from it? What kind of brewery is it? So 
anything that you release that could pull from or compete with that positioning, like a seltzer or a cocktail or a kombucha, even a different beer style that you're not traditionally known for. You know, if you're a specialist brewery, I know not everyone is, and a lot of people just do everything, and that's fine too. That can be harmful from a positioning standpoint because you're putting out something that people don't expect from you. So that's the idea behind protecting the parent brand. And then kind of the other side of this coin and more related to your question is positioning the extension itself. You know, what is that seltzer going to be like? We had to tamp that down through the first few drafts of our our new book. We spent a lot of time in our work daily and in the book itself, obviously, uh, focusing on protecting the parent brand and how this new release will affect positioning and reputation. But that does kind of leave out the importance of this new extension as well. Yeah. I mean, you obviously want to set that release up for success with the same level of concern that you would want to protect your parent brand. So is launching a seltzer as a brand extension, will that limit its growth without really knowing this person's brewery or a lot of the moving parts here, the brand, the competitive set, customer expectations? I can't say definitively. It could it, it could be fine. Yeah. But since you did mention future SKUs and flavors, focusing on the longer term opportunity that this seltzer has here, focusing on the longer term opportunity can help make the sort of brand architecture decision. I imagine you're already headed there, Cody, so I'm probably just interrupting you, but Aaron's writing that line or getting into the line between a brand extension and a sub-brand, right? Yeah. I mean, that is kind of what, what we segue into when we're thinking about this. So it, it's really common to give an example, like amongst our clients and our body of work, particularly with seltzer, a launch might go like this. A brewery releases a seltzer and then some sort of seltzer variant. So like a mimosa seltzer or some sort of cocktail themed seltzer, a margarita seltzer, lemonade seltzer, some sort of punch. Yeah. Bud, light, lemon, hard seltzer, hard soda, platinum. (laughs) Well, I I kind of peeked ahead. I I know we'll get back. We'll get back to that postmodern mess, but (laughs) specifically to the question about seltzer being limited by a brand extension, you're probably fine initially to extend your parent brand into a seltzer without hurting the parent brand or the seltzer itself. But every single time you release something new after that, it starts to get really weird. Think about that Bud Light example. Bud Light is a light beer, but it's buried under like seven different qualifiers and industry adjectives at that point when you're adding, you know, lemonade and seltzer and platinum and God knows what. So every single time you release a new extension, you're adding another layer to that cake, if that makes sense. You're not extending your new seltzer brand necessarily. You're still extending that original parent brand. And so if if your plan was to release multiple flavors down the line, you could run into trouble there and start tripping up over, all right, this hierarchy is getting kind of weird. What do we do? So like every single one of these moves, back to that Bud Light, lemon, hard soda, seltzer, platinum, ultra, (laughs) this can make things really muddy and confusing. And, you know, in that case, it's like, okay, if a company is releasing something like that, they're obviously throwing everything they can at the wall. What are they? That can really hurt perception of your parent brewery, especially in the craft industry where so many people scrutinize and reflect their own ideals through where they buy beer and why they buy beer. So unless your parent brand just isn't very valuable in the first place, and if your parent brand isn't valuable, that would be really weird (laughs) because otherwise, why would you leverage the parent brand to put on the seltzer anyway? Because there's no point in doing that. I think this can hurt overall business long term, worst case best case, you could run into problems as you try to extend upon an extension upon an extension down the line. So we keep kind of wailing on it and joking about it. And they obviously wanted to leverage the Bud Light name in the Budweiser example, but you know, Bud Light, hard seltzer soda or hard soda or whatever it's called. Bud Light spike soda pop. Yeah. 
I, who's that? Who is it for? Who made it? it? It's 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 nondescript. I'm drinking one right now, actually. I know it is 10 a.m., but I thought I heard you shotgun something back there while I was rambling about brand extensions. I got a long day of editing ahead of me. <laughs> I'm on number three. <laughs> so to wrap this up, I feel like we're kind of in the weeds here. Aaron, for your brewery launching an extension or any listener out there who's considering a new release this year and is in the same position, you should think about how you want to or could extend that new brand itself down the line. And that is kind of the name of the game, especially with the the Beyond Beer stuff like seltzers. It's just this constant churn of innovation and new flavors, which is hard to sustain, but that's another conversation. So if you see a path where that could happen, then you should consider, you might consider, I should say, creating a buffer or a little firewall between your parent brand and this new seltzer brand so you could do so safely. And that buffer, like Cody outlined, could just be a sub-brand. It doesn't have to be a huge a huge lift from a creative standpoint because you're already creating a brand extension. A sub-brand isn't too far of a leap from the parent brand itself in terms of positioning since it's already heavily tied to the parent brand itself. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much universal. Your parent brand is still going to be the main purchasing driver even in a scenario where you're creating a sub-brand as well. For sure, yeah. Okay, good stuff. Quick note on this. Now, let's not be obnoxious about this today. We have a new book on this topic. Stay tuned. (laughs) If it's not out later this year, Cody and I will both resign from Kodo. Isaac will resign. I will not. (laughs) I will take no responsibility. (laughs) Harsh but fair. (laughs) So for anyone out there that's interested in this topic and brand architecture, you're probably already a subscriber, but if not, head over to beerbrandingtrends.com, join the newsletter, and you will know when that book drops, and it will be dropping this year. Next question, because I don't want to resign. (laughs) Question two here. I am a longtime newsletter subscriber and was surprised that you didn't include the hard seltzer shakeout idea in the annual annual review. Did something change between the time you wrote that email and the publishing of this article that makes you think that was an incorrect prediction? Thanks for all the hard work on this stuff. Our team loves everything you guys are putting out. Yeah. So that was issue nine of the Beer Branding Trends newsletter. So back in September or October last year, I will put a link to that newsletter in the show notes for people to read. So the reason that didn't make the cut in this annual piece in the hard seltzer section was a couple things. Number one, I didn't want it to sound too clickbaity. That title, you know, the coming hard seltzer shakeout is already cutting it as close to clickbait as as we feel comfortable while still taking pride in what we put out here at Kodo. Yeah, this one weird trick will cause your hard (laughs) seltzer to go gangbusters. White Claw would hate if you knew. White Claw would hate. Yeah, you won't believe number seven. This one weird (laughs) trick. But reviewing open rates on that email, maybe we should just do nothing but clickbait titles from now on. Clickbait works. It does. Coupons work. Clickbait work. Universal human truths. Anyway, the real reason we didn't include it was that I felt we spoke to the same idea from that newsletter in a clearer way in the brand architecture section of the annual trends review. And this piece is already overly long. It ended up being around 17,000 words. So we didn't need to be redundant uh, again and again. And we trimmed out another three or 4,000 words as we were editing the thing anyway. So the main point of that newsletter wasn't that Hard Seltzer's doomed, despite the the fun clickbait title, because as of, let me check my watch, 2022, Hard Seltzer is assuredly not doomed. No matter what the non-trade press headlines are saying, IRI data proves the seltzer is still going quite strong. At a top line, what you're seeing is, is a flattening of growth, but in context, that's following what? 
Cody, four year, three, three to four years of triple digit category growth. Mm. So Seltzer may not be in meteoric ascendancy. It may not be the, the, the buzzy new thing anymore, but it's now a maturing and I would even say entrenched category. Let me, let me, I've got it pulled up here. Let me read the intro to that piece, that email, and then explain what I mean when I say we spoke to it in a clearer way in the brand architecture section. Because to be clear, this is actually a brand architecture consideration more so than a hard seltzer as a beverage category consideration. So here it is. Okay, I'm reading now. The headline or the, the title of the newsletter was The Coming Seltzer Shakeout or How Many Brands Can Your Brewery Maintain? In the great seltzer rush of 2019-2021, we spoke with easily 50-plus breweries who were working to get a hard seltzer out the door as soon as possible. Savvier groups understood that a hard seltzer might not work within their broader portfolio, whether from a philosophical angle, so why would our brewery make anything other than beer, or from a market perception angle, so what would making a brewery say about our brewery? Did I say that right? What would a seltzer say about what our brewery? What would making a seltzer say <laughs> about our brewery? I think I said that right. Yeah, anyway. In response to these questions, the breweries we spoke and worked with were generally planning one of three options. Option number one, release some sort of endorsed brand. So Wild Basin Hard Seltzer by Oscar Blues Brewing, Mas Agave Hard Seltzer Seltzer by Founders, Alpen Bloom Hard Seltzer by Prost Brewing. Yeah, and and as a quick rule of thumb, that by or from or crafted by or brought to you by by, or a joint of, (laughs) that's a quick tell that these are endorsed brands. Yeah, for sure. So back to the email here, uh, where were we? Option two. Uh, so option two was to create an entirely new brand, effectively becoming a house of brands at the corporate level along the way. So that would be like uh, anything Boston Beer does. So like truly hard seltzer, zero connection to the Boston Beer at the, the corporate level. And then option three was just to not overthink it and release a brand extension. So we will use this example many times today, I'm sure, XYZ Brewing Hard Seltzer. Okay, so that that's done, done reading the email intro there. So this is the framing that we see as a reason for the coming seltzer shakeout. Again, clickbait. Sorry for that. But not that the entire category will plummet and crater, but that smaller breweries will decide that it may no longer be worth the effort to keep these in their portfolio. And for the purposes of this email, we were predicting a shakeout from the smaller breweries that had actually thought through the brand architecture ramifications of introducing a seltzer and decided to create an endorsed or entirely new brand. And I think this has, at least anecdotally, a few of our in a few of our recent conversations and projects. I think this is proving to be correct. Cody, are, what are you hearing? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that prediction will mostly end up being accurate. Managing multiple brands gets really expensive really quickly, mm-hmm. and it's just challenging from a how many hours of labor can you put on it? How much can you worry about each individual brand? People really underestimate what goes into building and maintaining an entirely new, um, sometimes even a sub-brand. Yeah. You have to give it as many resources and focus as your main brewery brand to build it correctly, especially in the case if you're trying to move to more of that like Boston Beer House of Brands scenario. You're essentially starting at a completely new company and doubling your workload um, if you're doing it correctly. So if you've created a separate seltzer brand or whatever beverage, a, a RTD cocktail, kombucha, coffee, whatever, that has to be actively managed. You know, someone has to be on the stick, has to have its own values, value propositions for customers. We have to manage social channels, really program messaging and positioning objectives well so that we know what success looks like. 
you need to make sure your distributor or your distribution network is supporting these products. Yeah. And if it's not gaining traction, then it could just be sort of an effort, an effort dump and a distraction. And it might just become too much of a hassle to keep it in the rotation. And that's, that's the point we should have led with. I feel like it took us a long time to kind of get down, (laughs) down to why this actually didn't make the cut uh, in this year's piece. But if you've created some sort of new beverage, hard seltzer or otherwise, the more distance you put between that new brand and your parent brand, so whether that's an endorsed brand, a new brand, whatever, the harder it is to manage and scale. It's not insurmountable, obviously. You know, we work with plenty of breweries, large and small, that, that continually do this successfully. But if this new brand that you've created is not gaining traction, here's where the shakeout prediction comes in, and it's not growing in your portfolio, we just think most breweries will not keep it around. It could end up being a seasonal offering. It could end up being kind of you you lose the sub-brand or the endorsed brand dressing, and it just kind of becomes more of an in-house thing like your, your the rest of your portfolio. This can apply certainly to larger breweries. We've seen some of that through skew rationalization, kind of forcing that as well. But those larger breweries typically have the resources to do this correctly. Like you hinted at, Cody, for smaller breweries where you've got you know, we work with people that just have one or two folks in the marketing, like comprising the marketing department. And each of those people wears seven or eight or 10 hats throughout the day. It just might be too much to maintain an entirely separate brand. And that is a long-winded answer to question number two. Cody, before we move on here, what are some other classic clickbait titles? Hit me. Oh, yeah. Uh You've been peeling bananas wrong your entire life. <laughs> yeah, I like the the 10 reasons why your grill brush will kill you. That one comes up a lot for me. Number nine will leave you aghast. My dog has destroyed two grill brushes this season already because I, I leave them out when the grill is cooling off. And she hasn't died yet. So I don't think the grill brush is going to kill me. Uh, she's actually eating them. Yeah, well... But have you learned the four signs that your dog may have gut yeast? Oh, mm, no. Thankfully, I have not learned that yet. <laughs> I, li- I like the clickbait where where it'll be a beautiful celebrity from like the 70s or 80s. And it's like, look at this freak now. You won't believe what they look like. <laughs> it's like, grandpa's 90 years old. Leave him alone. <laughs> yeah, they don't look like supermodels forever like yeah nope that's what we all get to do if we're lucky we're gonna get old yeah interesting uh leave peepaw alone (laughs) Mima, no (laughs) okay (laughs) question three is a quick one and it comes from rob what was your favorite trend this year we mentioned this already uh but we had we had that email come in almost immediately that was wasn't really a question but it was just a guy writing in with the word skulls with three exclamation points so he enjoys those Cody, I imagine Rob is after a visual trend. So yeah, skulls are always fun, but let me give you my favorite overall beer branding trend from the last like 10 years. And that is the ongoing labeling of various alcoholic beverages as functional and or outright healthy, saying that any beverage that contains ethanol is better for you, quote unquote, makes me smile. Again, Rob is probably after a visual trend. So for the listener, we have outlined eight visual trends this year, including, pull them up here, investing in illustration, minimal plus, 60s vintage revival, monoline, skulls, with only one exclamation point, custom dye lines, interactive packaging, and co-branded stunt beverages. Cody, put on your creative director hat and give Rob a real answer. Sure. I always lean toward the custom dye lines that is your actually doing something creative with 
labeling on packaging itself because of the aluminum shortage. People have started to get really creative with labels and I expect that to continue. The reason I like that is whenever I see something new from a production standpoint on the shelf, whether I know about the brewery or not, whether it's a beer style I particularly enjoy or not, I'm still going to pick it up and look at it. And that's huge. And I know I'm not the only one. So in terms of my own enjoyment as a customer and also actually converting sales, that custom dye line trend is very, very interesting to me. And then less on the visual side and more on the just this is crazy what's going on side. The co-branded stunt beverages, to me, they're very funny. Yeah. So we talk about this in our branding trends piece at length, so I'm not going to like rehash it here, but it's basically this idea that like, oh, Velveeta is partnering with so-and-so brewery and they're going to release a a cheese beer or some candy brand is partnering with a cider company and they're going to release a super sour warhead cider or whatever. I don't see long-term success in any of these things, but as kind of a like a seal who watches my Instagram feed and just claps. <laughs> I love seeing these because they're completely insane. And I probably like that for the wrong reasons, but I do enjoy seeing what uh, the corporate machine comes up with. Yeah, that might actually be a good, I don't know if you call it strategy, but that might be a good tactic moving forward for kind of the TikTok generation. These, I, I say it as though we're any better, but just as these younger generations come up, have decreasingly limited or increasingly limited less and less ability to focus on anything more than 10 or 15 seconds because we've been trained that way with all the the media consumption around us. So maybe these, you enjoy them. I kind of roll my eyes at them, though some of them can be funny. The co-branded stunt beverages, maybe that's actually a good way to get quick pop uh, and, and sell some weird cheese beer. Yeah, and, and I should stress, I'm not buying these things and consuming them <laughs> because 90% of them look absolutely disgusting, but I like them almost as like, postmodern phenomenon (laughs) they tickle me for sure (laughs) all right question four here hello we are a small brewery and planning near cleveland we've got a good idea of what we need from a branding perspective and are wondering if we should think about our brand architecture as part of this process we've seen you write about this a lot in your newsletter we plan to eventually move into other categories specifically a distillery though this is down the line We weren't sure if we needed to sort that out at this early stage. Thanks. This is an awesome question. We received a similar question to this in our last, at the last conference uh, where where we were in Louisville presenting at the distillery conference, the ACSA Mm -hmm. similar question. So I I like this. You should answer this question, Cody, but very quickly, I I just want to say on that, that presentation, I just mentioned you and I travel around the country to present at various brewers conferences and, and about once a year, We've been doing this for the last 10 or 11 years now. Uh, about once a year, we'll give a talk called a Crash Course in Craft Beer Branding. This this is just kind of a foundational talk on all the stuff you need from a branding perspective to come to market. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that we just this year, just recently added brand architecture to that foundational beer branding talk and so or that outline, I guess. So in 2022, moving forward, we will at least mention it in these talks and and I say that for some background context, that's because for a new brewery for traditionally for a new brewery, brand architecture hasn't really been that important or that mission critical historically as you're coming to market because brand architecture for breweries and planning is usually straightforward. You you create a monolithic branded house and you call it good. Everything you do serves to build a parent brand. But in this case, and I'll stop talking now, Cody, what if you know that you will be getting into other verticals or other categories down the line? Uh, How do you approach this? 
Yeah, I think when you're standing at the the sort of head of the mountain of starting a brewery, you can definitely overthink brand architecture at an early stage. And the thing I've seen time and time again about opening and running and growing a business like a brewery is that it's really hard to predict what's going to happen. Yeah. So you, you'll have a lot of grand plans at first, and then two years into it, you go, oh, wow, we didn't end up doing any of that, either because a certain opportunity came up or a certain challenge got in your way. There's a lot of things that can happen from point A to point Q. So unless you want to sit down and chart out what this new, let's say, dis- distillery or brewery or whatever brand is going to be and how it will relate to the brewery overall, maybe you're doing cider, maybe you're doing a seltzer, maybe you're doing who knows what. But if you want to, unless you're going to sit down and chart out how it will relate to the brewery brand overall, if you're able to actually do that at that stage, first of all, I would be really impressed. Yeah, I personally would focus more on the core parent brand first. And kind of build out everything from once you kind of know what your footing is there. Yeah, I think I agree. You have to determine what your brewery itself stands for. What are your values? What is your positioning? How will you build your portfolio? And yeah, all of that stuff can certainly will likely shift over time as, as, as soon as you come into contact with the market. Yeah, I mean, you can loosely sketch out whether or not you want to have a relationship between, say, you're doing a brewery with kind of a distillery offshoot. You can certainly have an idea of what you want to do. There might be other core values or things you believe in or things you're passionate about that are informing all of those decisions and how they work in concert. But doing doing so without finalizing decisions here, that could inform what you end up using as the name for the brewery. You might want to go ahead and file an additional trademark class. That's a question for your legal counsel, obviously. But you know, if you're going to be in other categories, you might consider staking that out at this point. That, that's another reason why I could see considering brand architecture up front is just to make sure that whatever kind of name or trade dress you want to use, that you know that that's going to be available and ownable. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the long and short of it. If you're not opening up a distillery immediately alongside your brewery, probably best to just wait and build that brewery, that core parent brewery brand out itself. And then see where you are when the, when all the smoke of opening a new brewery and all the dust settles. Yeah. And, and who knows what next beverage will be big in three years. I mean, think, think about the last five years and, and the weird stuff we've seen go on in the market. So it might be good just to sit tight. All right. Next question here. So question five is about non-alcoholic beer. Do you really think this is going to be a major category, something along the lines of 5% share at some point, or is this kind of new and shiny along the lines of hard seltzer three years ago? and that everyone is talking and writing about it. Seltzer might not be a good example of what I'm asking here, but I'm curious to hear your take. Thanks for writing this. I enjoy reading these each year. Yeah, on non-alcoholic beer specifically, just to give some real numbers, Lester Jones of the National Beer Wholesalers Association said that it might rise to a 1% share at most. So I'd go with his opinion over mine. He's got a just a touch of a better read on this stuff than we do. It is hard not to be bullish on the category right now, isn't it? Especially with athletic brewing taking over the world. And Cody, you and I are fielding new non-alcoholic beer brand project inquiries and projects like every other week, it seems like. Yeah, and it's it's anecdotal and it's obviously just from our perspective in our little corner of the world. But it does feel like back in 2019 when everyone who was calling us with inquiries started to really feel that seltzer wasn't going to be a flash in the pan. And that there was probably some money to be made there, depending on how you position and enter the market. I'm getting kind of a similar feeling with non-alcoholic options right now. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like it, it's what's next. You know, we thought it was kombucha for a while. I still think there's room for kombucha. I think cider could hit. But non-alcoholic beer is definitely the thing right now. And, and so, yeah, anyway, 
to your question, I, I do think that in a you do bring up a good point. NA beer is new and shiny right now. Let's step back from that though. The the low and no category itself, the non-beer stuff, kombuchas, functional beverages, mocktails, wine, even, these are gonna see huge growth over the coming decade. We said we see that in our broader beverage work that we're doing. And let me if if I can just kind of rattle around here for a minute, Cody, let me let me give you an idea. Let me try to try to articulate this idea that I've had for a little bit. And I don't know, I, I, I don't, I'm certain we haven't talked about it on the show. I'm not sure I've even talked about it with you. So let me, let me see if I can make this make sense. So non-alcoholic beer is a replacement for people who want beer without baggage. So for, would you agree that people who likely love and enjoy the taste of beer are the ones that are drinking non-alcoholic beer right now? Uh, almost certainly. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it, we don't have to go into the reasons. I mean, it's great. It's a pacer for whatever reason, a pacer, meaning like you would drink it, like you drink a water, you know, just to make sure you don't die at the end of the night or for whatever reason you want to drink it. But it is right now being positioned as a healthy alternative for the beer drinker. And I'd love to see numbers on who is drinking this. Really, the only metrics that we have comes from rather podcasts and conversations where we've heard Bill Schufelt from Athletic Brewing saying that 80% of athletic drinkers also drink or report as drinking regular beer and alcohol throughout the week. So these are people that are just looking for some moderation, not just flat out teetotalers. And, and so maybe we can extrapolate that to the, the broader NA beer segment itself. So the thing I want to discuss with you, the idea, and the question is about how far this category can grow. I think that it's us elder millennials right now that are fueling the non-alc growth. I think that it's it's people who already love beer. This is very anecdotal, but it's people who love beer and are looking to reel it in a bit. So if I were to make a prediction, I think the non-alcoholic or the NA beer category itself could see a whole lot of growth over the next five years. I then think it might plateau, and the reason for that is that young people, let's say, who will become legal drinking age Gen Z folks, who we already know are drinking way less alcohol than any generation before, they may not develop a taste and affinity for beer. So I I, I don't know that Gen Z folks are having that experience of drinking beer and coming to enjoy beer. Some of them are, obviously, but, but as a whole cohort— macro or craft i just don't think they're getting into beer and so they're not experiencing <laughs> they're not, they're not experiencing the thrill of almost dying in a cornfield every weekend <laughs> through high school you know as you learn the the joys of beer so why would they drink an na beer for that beer flavor when they're growing up in a world with a million other compelling non-alcoholic non-beer options sitting in the same cold box or cannabis or just outright sobriety which is a a, a trend within that cohort as well. I could be wrong because with the moves that athletic brewing is making, it may even, maybe the category jumps to a two share. I don't know. I, I would defer to Lester Jones on, on this sort of uh, data driven answer, but yeah, I don't know, Cody, that was, that was a little more rambly than I wanted it to be. Do you, did, do you understand what I'm saying? And do you have any thoughts on any of that? Yeah. I mean, just to synthesize what you're saying, younger people don't have the install base of beer drinkers that folks our age do you know there's a drop off there and so if the idea of non-alcoholic beer not alternatives not related verticals but specifically in a beer it says it on the bottle or the can they're just not going to need that the way that that you or i would you know thinking back to our glory days when we're drinking beer all the time 
you can't do that anymore when you get older. It makes perfect sense why this category is emerging the way it is. People have to round that consumption off a little bit. And yeah, like I, I could see us driving that for a little bit further, and then I could see it not, <laughs> not meaning much anymore after that to, to folks who didn't have this sort of experience of coming of age during the craft beer boom. Okay, I'm gonna delete. I'm gonna I'm gonna remove everything that I said and just have that be your original idea because you said that much more succinctly. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, so to to the question, yeah, I don't know. One <laughs> percent share, who knows? <laughs> yeah, numbers, I can't tell you. I don't know. Yeah, no, non-alcoholic as a benefit for beverages as a whole, huge. Just in nor it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. Keep in mind, we're not talking about kombuchas, CBD. Like this is a different. This is specifically non-alcoholic beer, which I think has a very drilled down purpose ultimately in the market. Yeah. So next question is kind of a tactical one. Do you have any thoughts on putting cans on the front of variety packs? I remember seeing you write somewhere about how calling a variety pack a quote unquote variety pack is kind of lazy. I'm wondering if putting your cans across the front of a variety pack is also kind of lazy in a way. Cody, what do you think? Yeah, I remember kind of talking about that, calling a, you know, like a mixed pack of beer, a variety pack. Our point wasn't so much that it was lazy. It's more that it's the default. Yeah. I think our thinking around that, though, is that it's kind of a missed opportunity. You could have, you know, everybody knows what variety pack means. Um, It's a very popular item obviously for a lot of our clients and and for people who want to just kind of try the run of what a brewery offers but it, it it presents a branding opportunity so instead of calling it a variety pack you know what what's your brewery's version of the term variety pack and that can manifest in a bunch of different ways we've seen it with our clients and in the industry as well when people get really creative with how and why they present a variety pack of beer and what they call it so i mean you look broader at, at variety packs themselves and the role they play. They should be seen kind of as a tool for keeping people engaged year round. The contents of the variety pack could shift throughout seasons, keep sales fresh and growing, keeping new people in, trying your products and figuring out which one they like to sort of keep buying regularly later on. So tactically, how might this work when we're talking about variety packs? Is there some larger theme you can apply to the style of beers that you make or the type of hops used in the beers in the pack? or the occasion that you're suggesting this to be tied with, you can use that to create a cool name for the variety pack that kind of reinforces what your parent brand stands for and kind of helps tell that brand story. Yeah. Kind of related to the idea of variety packs as branding opportunities, it's how they can help you introduce new beers to the market. We're having conversations with breweries right now who are viewing their variety packs as a way to introduce and test new beers in the market. So you have like three flagship cores, whatever you want to call them, and then throw in one new beer I think the thinking here is it's not as easy as it was to just take a wild chance and throw a new skew onto a very valuable shelf placement. Yeah, you can't, you just can't get it, even if you want to in many cases. Yeah. It's too precious. You know, it, it, it's, and if that thing flops, then you wasted a shelf placement. Again, it, it's so key because everyone's fighting for those in the first place. Bill Manley at Surly Brewing mentioned that in a recent expert guest blog on our site. Um, he talked about how consumers buy the variety pack more than the specific brands. So you're able to kind of slip some new offerings in there and and do that without taking the full-on risk of placing a new SKU in a very val- valuable shelf slot. Back to the question about putting cans across the front of the variety pack. I mean, 
I, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of throw this back to you, Isaac, because I think this kind of became the default approach yeah. for that format. Do you agree? And and what what do you think about that? Yeah, it's definitely canon. Uh, and I think that whether it's a variety pack or even even like a maybe we'll go back to when breweries I remember like Dogfish Head being one of the earlier ones six point even before them maybe who started putting their cans in boxes like six packs mm. so I don't know what what, the, what would that be seven or eight years ago I think it was mostly consumer education back in those days so getting a six pack that w- of cans a six pack of cans that wasn't in high cone or pack tech was new and you had to clearly illustrate what was inside the box so I think there was a very functional thing to it so you include the the cans across the front what are you buying when you put this box in your cart? But be but beyond that, I do think there's merit to putting cans in the secondary pack, uh, particularly if you're a new brewery. You know, you you, you want to, especially maybe if your packaging isn't as templated. I think it can be a good move uh, because if you're new, pushing the cans uh, in overall parent brand as much as you can, whenever you can, is a is a smart play because at those early stages, especially when you're you're new to new to packaging, new to distribution, new to the market your packaging is your branding in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we work with a lot of brewery clients, again, particularly newer ones who are actively scaling, who say that they view distribution. This is maybe, maybe a future newsletter we'll, we'll put out, but they view distribution as an overall marketing and awareness driving piece, even though the margin isn't as lucrative or exciting as the taproom sales, it's actually an important part of them growing overall awareness uh, in, in demand for their business. So anyway, contrast that with if you're more established. If your brewery has been around for 20 years, well, I'll, I'll try to bring it back to the question here, and, and you're putting together a variety pack of a more established brand, I think you can take more liberties with themed illustrations or storytelling and stuff like that versus the individual cans, you know, can one, two, three, four on the box. Of course, your positioning and messaging and branding all drives that. And just to just to kind of echo what you said, because the the conversation with Surly went out a few weeks before this beer branding trends piece, and Bill laid out nicely in that guest piece why or how Surly approaches branding and positioning their variety packs. I'll put that in the show notes here. Yeah, they do a really great job of laying that out. Really quickly before we move on, you mentioned briefly if your packaging is more templated. Maybe you don't need to put the cans on the outer or secondary box. I know what you're saying there, and I think I agree fully. Can you explain that a little bit and talk about that a little bit more for the listeners? Sure, and I'll make it real fast. There's no hard and fast rule here, but if all of your cans are largely the same, which like with seltzers, for example, we see it commonly, right? You switch the colors between skews or something like that. Then putting three or four identical cans side by side in a box, it's fine, but it might not be as compelling as doing some sort of cool illustration or something like that. It's just the same thing repeated four times. So (laughs) food for thought as you think your way through this. Uh, Anything else on that or can we move on to the next question? Are you good? No, I think we're good there. Question seven. I saw your mention on the Voodoo Ranger Light Lager. Do you think that this will actually work? Voodoo Ranger is a dominant IPA brand. Do you think this move could hurt New Belgium's Voodoo Ranger strategy? Yeah, this is a great question. I remember beer Twitter (laughs) all freaking out when this was announced. And because of that, I like this question because I was interested in this myself. So we actually asked New Belgium. We reached out about this topic, and we got a great blurb from Andrew Emerton, a senior brand manager at New Belgium. He's included in the expert uh, the expert section of our beer branding trends review. And let me just read his answer because that's, that's probably a bit more valuable than our opinion here. So our, so I'll start with the question that we gave Andrew and then give his answer. So 
The question I asked Andrew was, New Belgium recently launched Devilishly Light, a light lager extension within the Voodoo Ranger brand. Tell me a bit about this strategy. Is a Voodoo Ranger drinker also a Devilishly Light drinker? Is this an opportunity to capture another occasion or maybe a chance to explore what else you can do with the wildly successful Voodoo Ranger brand? It's the end of my question. And then Andrew's response, which again is in this year's Beer Branding Trends Review, was as follows. I think the answer is yes. Devilishly Light is effectively us trying to understand where Voodoo Ranger has the permission to go. There's only so much we can ponder and debate internally before we need to put something out in the market and then listen like crazy. We've been testing the light lager territory for a while now with brands like Mountain Time, only available in Colorado, and a couple of collegiate-focused lagers, Old Aggie and Old Tuffy, for example. With Devilishly, we're simply trying to learn everything you outlined by launching the brand only in North Carolina with some great retail partners that will help us monitor the brand's performance. Light Lager is very tricky to figure out, and we're still trying to understand if there's a bigger future for us in that space. Devilishly is simply us trying to learn as much as possible before going big. End quote. That's phenomenal. Thank you for, if you listen to this, Andrew, thank you. And I will say that, Cody, I think if anyone can pull this off, it'd probably be New Belgium and specifically the Voodoo Ranger brand that they're building, uh, even within this move, if I'll just bring it back to our favorite topic of the day from a brand architecture standpoint, they're putting airlocks or, or buffers between brands. So devilishly light is, I guess, technically it would be what an endorsed brand uh, versus a Voodoo Ranger extension. So that's smart. They're leveraging the parent brand just enough to get that initial bump out in the market while still looking forward to bigger brand building opportunities. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of, this kind of indicates New Belgium's move to a house of brands portfolio model yeah. where each brand has its own separate discrete life complete with their own extensions so if devilishly light is successful they will probably create some sort of line extension and then back to an earlier question about line extensions versus sub brands they can do so without further diluting the voodoo ranger brand itself so yeah yeah you know testing this on a limited basis really really smart and then this little nugget, completely anecdotal and based on my life and the lives of my friends who are kind of reaching this age as well, mid-30s, looking at our 40s with, with dread. 70, 75 now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think all IPA drinkers will end up being lager drinkers at some point in the future. When that happens, how that happens, what kind of lagers, a lot of questions are in the air, but at least that's what we've seen in our circles. And when we're talking about light lager as a future sort of, you know, do we stake this out now? Is there going to be big growth here? We're waiting for it. But that's what we've seen kind of in our circles and kind of having conversations around the lagers. I agree completely. I, I think IPA gives way to dad beers, which gives way also maybe a little bit to like session shout session sours. I think that that's maybe the other place where, where mm. people can kind of graduate to, but everyone's palate is different. So all right, open up my fourth Bud Light spiky hard seltzer. <laughs> Shotgun this real quick. All right, question eight on the longest podcast we have recorded to date. The day parting trend is interesting. Do you think there would be any issue with a brewery releasing a coffee brand or some sort of energy drink brand targeted for mornings? Modern Times puts out a coffee brand, for example. Cody, what do you think? It's really tough to answer this question without grounding it in a specific business and context. Yeah. Agreed. So answering generally, if it makes sense for your brand to do so from a positioning and messaging standpoint, then yes, 
you can launch coffee, you can launch whatever you want if it makes sense. Yeah, agreed. Depending on your brand and where you think you can credibly go, what where you can credibly play or what products you can credibly offer. If coffee or an energy drink makes sense, yes, go for it. If it doesn't, you'll probably and you still want to release it then you'll probably want some level of distance or barrier between your parent brand and the new brand. Modern Times released, it's just a brand extension, right? It's just Modern Times Coffee. So that worked for them for a little bit anyway. (laughs) So there are a variety of options to help you accomplish that. Yes, stay tuned for our next book. Next question. Question nine, the final question. Are there any trends that didn't make the cut this year? And yeah, a few off the top of my head, uh, the big one that got axed kind of last minute was Mexican lager or Mexican beer, Mexican imports. So, so what do we have, Cody? We have Modelo, Corona, Pacifico. There's a few others. Help me out. Dos Equis, Tecate. Oh, yeah. There you go. Okay. Dos Equis. Yeah, of course. These are, these are seeing huge growth over the last, I mean, this is, this isn't a 2022 thing. This has been going on for like four or five, probably even longer years. But but what we're seeing is startup breweries tackle this style really well as well. And so the reason, the reason this didn't make the cut is because I think there's more of a data in changing drinking drinker demographics angle to, to this like particular idea that, that frankly, we're just as we started writing about it, found that we're not knowledgeable enough to, to speak about it in a meaningful way. And I didn't want to cheapen what what could be a very major opportunity or part of the beer industry moving forward by just like, hey, Mexican beers are real hot right now. I think that that kind of cheapens, you know, a compelling idea. So we're working with a few brewers and distributors on a special piece on this idea. I don't know if that's going to be a beer branding trends newsletter issue or a blog post or something, maybe a podcast. But uh, we are going to explore this in more detail down the line. What else, Cody? We always have a few visual trends that get axed. That's probably the biggest area where stuff just gets killed. Um, do you remember any of the the ones we kind of knocked off? Yeah, vintage IP or vintage intellectual property was one. Yeah, kind of covered it sort of recently ish in our 2019 or 2020 review. Felt it was a little too soon to revisit it. We think this is something that's going to crop up year after year after year anyway. Just as people acquire these brands and revive and and drive interest to them but we are seeing just sort of a general rise in you know the revival of old regional brands or pre-prohibition brands etc yeah we're we're actually excitingly getting to gearing up to kick off one of those projects was at the end of may we're starting that one so our team's already fighting to get in on it (laughs) it's funny watching them all duke it out we may have to let everyone work on that little bit of overkill but yeah we'll i see. think everyone's going to want a piece of it. this stuff's cool right it, you know when you talk about capital a authenticity these brands are kind of what it's all about so diving back into that i think it's really fun just from a creative standpoint you already touched on it it's probably self-explanatory we can do it quickly but can you can you just def- what does vintage ip mean in case anyone kind of missed what you said there right right so uh, this is where a brewery either startups or regional brands it, it depends will actually acquire the intellectual property rights to some bygone beer brand. A lot of times this will be something anywhere from before prohibition, basically through the seventies and eighties when all of these places, you know, went out of business to the sort of the big three emerging. And these releases are drenched in that beautiful original branding or, you know, a reinterpretation of it from back when it was in business. And so it has a very sort of history and, and narrative based presentation in the branding. That's a really cool idea from a portfolio standpoint if you're looking at your beer lineup because you can release a new brand that is immediately differentiated, whether it's like local 
or it has some kind of cool story related to the history of it, there's a baked in reason for caring about something like this. Even if it's as simple as, hey, this thing has been around for 70 years or whatever it is. Or something like, hey, this used to be made, you know, down right around the corner. That is enough differentiation to kind of build an exciting platform for an individual SKU. Um, a couple of examples of this, or a really good local one, actually, Upland Brewing here in Indiana. They relaunched Champagne Velvet seven or eight years ago. You know, it's, it's like an American lager, uh, an old style, like prohibition style American lager. And it has to be one of their leading brands, at least by volume. So it can be really smart business opportunity if it's executed well that's a good lunch beer back 2019 <laughs> i think it before 20 but when you and i would have uh about three lunch meetings a week where we would drink 10 of those things yeah it's a it's a phenomenal beer and i'm gonna have it after i finish this bud light spiked uh lemonade seltzer that i'm drinking so anyway if if done really well yeah these these vintage ip brands can be just stunning it's it's an opportunity for beautiful design as well back to trends and kind of the other trend that I can remember that we axed. Um, do you want to talk about millennial nostalgia on the podcast here? I know you're writing or working on a, a thing about it. <laughs> I don't want to like scoop you or, or mm. uh, get out ahead of you there. Yeah. Yeah. We, we can talk about it briefly. Um, the, the reason this didn't make the cut is that when we started writing about it, when we started kind of pulling on the string, similar to the, the Mexican lager story, it revealed a bunch of other interesting angles that I wanted to just spend more time with. And we, we, you know, ran out of time because we got to publish this thing. We can't write it forever. So a, a quick rundown on millennial nostalgia. Millennials are obsessed with nostalgia for whatever reason and get dive into that. This trend isn't about that so much as specifically touching on a class of products that we've seen explode over the last year or two, especially like right this second as we're heading into summer of things and products that we enjoyed as children now being served up, you know, with alcohol in them. So, which, you know, Hey, cool. So alcohol and Capri sun pouches, honest to God, I've seen that alcohol in juice boxes, alcoholic push pops, alcoholic icicles. We, we were, we were on a call with a startup in that space just last week, Cody, uh, rocket pop flavored stuff, you know, loads of, we talked about it earlier, but loads of CPG co-branding that veers into alcohol. So, Probably the biggest one in that space would be Hard Mountain Dew. Basically, any traditional non-alc beverage that launches a boozy extension will likely fall into this kind of interesting space. And so this by itself is kind of interesting, but it's not really newsworthy or revelatory. I mean, how many years have we written about nostalgia, you know, nostalgic branding? We just talked about vintage IP. It's a constant thing in branding and marketing and advertising. The angle that really interested me and the reason I wanted to kind of pause and explore it in more detail is how no one is squawking about how these products could seemingly be perceived as marketing to children. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> maybe I want, to, I want to kind of whisper it, even though we're putting this out on a podcast. Uh, I'm the last person on earth, just to be very abundantly clear, I'm the last person on earth to call for more regulation or more rules. But some of these newer products just seem like they could actually be very easily grabbed by a child. And, and, and the premise, and I think that is the premise whenever these sort of regulatory conversations come up, these scenarios, from a compliance standpoint or a labeling rule standpoint, at least in the other industries that Kodo has worked in. It, so it's that 
if it's a product that a kid could or would consume, let's say like a, a, an aluminum can, and it's designed in such a way that looks like any other product that a kid would consume, then you should, you have a responsibility to be careful about what you put on that label. And I'm kind of rambling yet again. My, my point here is that when I started to look into this, I, <laughs> I found a complete dearth of people talking about it. And I just think that's surprising <laughs> as an aside, just to vent for a minute. Whenever we work in cannabis, we can't put a fucking fruit illustration on the pack. You know, we have to be very careful about what colors we use and what illustration styles we use. We have to use garish warning labels and, and graphics, you know, on the packaging. And there are so many physical container requirements in cannabis that you have to adhere to. It's so like how a product is sealed and packaged for child safety. So there's all of that onerous stuff. And then I'll go to the grocery store with my daughter in the cart. And we always go to the beer aisle because, you know, daddy's got to take pictures of of the, the set and look at cool stuff and buy stuff. And, and some sometimes, literally, we will see cartoons on beer packaging. I'm sure it's stolen IP from actual children's shows. And, and my daughter sees it. And, and then you keep walking and I see boozy push pops that look like the icicles or, or what, what are icicles. What are they called? Popsicles, mm-hmm. you know, that we already have in our freezer at home. So I don't even know how to discuss this. Um the idea first landed on my radar. I never thought of it. Uh, it came on my radar on another podcast where I was talking with Matt Kierkegaard from Australia Brews News. And apparently this is a major issue in Australia. Uh, thankfully, we haven't run into it in our work down there in Australia yet. I think it's actually just as an aside, it's led to some breweries completely rebranding in Australia due to accusations of marketing to children. So this is a real conversation being had down there. And it's just something I'm not seeing here in the States. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I, I think that when or if we end up writing about it, I, I don't know that it's going to be kind of a hand ringy, you know, won't someone please think of the children angle. And again, I'm hesitant to call for any level of increased oversight, but but there's just an interesting conversation to be had about things like boozy popsicles and Capri Sun pouches. And, and yeah, that's a very long winded way of saying the trend was removed from our annual piece for that reason alone. There's just too much to look into and write about. And maybe someone else should write that piece. Stay tuned. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Again, I don't, I don't know. I, it take, takes a lot to dive into it, but so do, do you want to do, you know, we're running super long do you want to do one more? Do you see that? Do you see the final question, kind of the optional question we have down there? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a it's a kind of a nice closing question, so I think we should do it. Okay, then this is this is actually the final question. Question ten is a fun one. I'd like to get your take on how you feel about the craft beer industry as a whole. Are you optimistic or worried about the industry as we move forward? The last few years have been marked by several major reckonings on race and gender, specifically sexual harassment and assault, and of course, COVID. Appreciate any thoughts. Appreciate any thoughts. Oh, that's the end of the question. Appreciate any thoughts is like, please advise <laughs> in an email. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, your take. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. So, yeah, this uh, this isn't a fun question, but it's worth talking about for sure. We we shouldn't skip it because it's uncomfortable to talk about. The industry is evolving fast, and any I I really I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I think that anyone who is open now and still open ten years from now, let's just say like open in twenty thirty, I think you're going to have something really to be proud about. We are entering what could end up being a, a fairly nasty economic downturn. Hopefully, not super prolonged, but. I think it's definitely going to happen. The next few years are going to be very touch and go. Uh, 
<laughs> war in Europe, COVID is still a thing, supply chain issues, inflation. Uh, we have an election coming up here in the States, which means that everyone will lose their minds for a year or two, which is always fun. So the next few years are going to be interesting. But to your question for the race and gender issue, I mean, yeah, the world itself is changing. And I'll just speak to here in the States, not so much the beer industry, but maybe just broader demographics are shifting. And the beer industry has to evolve, or frankly, we will we will see a lot of places not make it. Uh, the whole industry will, will shrink and shrink and continue shrinking. And I, I think this doesn't, the number doesn't matter. I know it's good for headlines and stuff like that and for pounding your chest and being proud, but the number of breweries, I mean, we'll, I think it's inevitable that we'll hit 10,000 breweries in the next year or two. We'll probably hit 11 or 12,000 breweries at some point. I think Bart Watson had a metaphor in a recent uh, talk where he said, we've increased the size of the pie, but we're decreasing the, the sizes of the slices of pie within there. So it, um, how many of those slices of pie, how many of those breweries will be around in 2030? I'm not sure. Maybe as a way to, to kind of put more, more quantitative ideas in play here. Cody, you and I were discussing that really good Rabobank paper. Yeah, Rabobank uh, report a few weeks ago. I think a few big takeaways are all about these major demographic changes that I'm trying very ineffectively to speak to. Can you remember any of those off the top of your head? Yeah, I remember a few of the more kind of interesting and standout ones. The big one is that women are now, for the first time in the States at least, drinking more than men. Yeah, spending more, drinking more um, in the alcoholic space. This is even more pronounced in women, non-white women. So women across the board, across race, across socioeconomic levels are just simply drinking more alcohol. The beer industry itself has a less than stellar record of marketing <laughs> to women historically, yeah. to say nothing of the sort of institutional abuse that we've seen kind of come to light. Um, I don't need to spell out what that what message that sends to a market that is now dominated by women. So that less than stellar record is changing, but it needs to happen a lot faster if you want to retain women as customers. And, and if that's where the area of growth is, you would be foolish to <laughs> openly insult <laughs> the people who make up your market, yeah. you know, specifically as craft beer drinkers. You know, it, it would be really easy to lose anyone, men, women, you know, whatever, to other alternatives that aren't in the beer space at all, like wine or spirits or cannabis or you know, there's a million other places for people to take their money. The report also highlighted some surprising figures about baby boomers. There's something really wild. I forget the number, but it was something like two or three out of every five alcoholic drinks that are consumed in the United States are being consumed by baby boomers. Yeah, yeah. It did surprise me. I, you know, that's really significant. And when I think about the type of talks we have with clients up front at the beginning of projects when we talk about all right who who are we aiming for you know who are we focusing on it tends to skew younger and i'm wondering about that yeah everyone wants to yeah quote unquote age down we hear that all the time don't we you know we want to age yeah. down we want to age down <laughs> it's like why <laughs> yeah i mean everyone defaults to kind of lean in favor of marketing to younger people i get that younger people drive fashion trends and music trends and a lot of lifestyle trends it's hard not to feel like there isn't a bit of ageism or at least a little bit of prejudice at play yeah. in this industry. And it seems like a really big missed opportunity. Baby boomers are drinking a ton. You know, why wouldn't you want a piece of that action? And I can't think of a single person we've ever worked with that goes, we really want to focus on baby boomers. I wonder why that is. And maybe that's a much longer discussion than um, we have time left for. Kind of the final insight 
I can't remember if this was in the Rabobank paper or some other article that we read, but this figure by 2030, there will be as many legal drinking age Gen Z folks as there are baby boomers, meaning <laughs> the market is doubling and half the market doesn't want to drink. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we already mentioned earlier that Gen Z is drinking way less than any group before them as well. Super health conscious. So this will be a very important consideration moving forward for the health of the industry as well. So all that suffice to say, we're already seeing this. On top of already seeing it, we're going to continue to see rapidly shifting demographics in the next, I mean, eight to 10 years, probably. Man, I forgot about that boomer statistic. That's crazy. I, I would have I bet a lot of money that millennials drink more than anyone. Uh, that's. I mean, if you go by the conversations we have, that would be an easy assumption to make, but apparently not accurate. Yeah, mom and dad pounding beer out there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the world, the world is changing, you know, it's changing quickly. It's changing drastically and breweries who don't evolve, who don't genuinely try to reach out and include women, include non-white folks, include boomers, older folks, you're going to have a hard time moving forward increasingly. There's some good context. The question was, are we hopeful about the beer industry? <clears throat> so Cody, we've given a a rough lay of the land, perhaps a, a bleak lay of the land. <laughs> and we've outlined a few issues, we'll say, that the beer industry is dealing with. And despite all of that, I think I am still hopeful about beer overall as a category and as a, as a beverage. And here's why. I have a family friend whose son, I, I consider this kid a nephew. He just turned 21 and he emailed me the other day. He asked me if I'd ever had a coconut porter, <laughs> which is funny. You know, we, it's like, yeah, like he's asking me if I know this, this beer exists. Essentially. It's like, well, yeah, I've had 17,000 porters, you know, in my <laughs> life. I've, I've, I've home brewed quite a few porters as well. And it, it and the, the reason I'm telling this story here is that it kind of ripped me out of the bubble that we're in. You know, all we talk about, especially now that we've, we've started this newsletter and podcast even more so now, all we talk about and think about and, 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 and in many cases consume is beer, you know, beer built the house that I'm sitting in. It built our fa my family. It, it, it built this wonderful business that you and I get to work in and, and work on every day. It's been one of the most important forces in my adult life. And so while I have a lot of reverence and love and enjoyment just for beer, take away all the business and all the talky talky about the shit that we do, mm -hmm. just a beautiful glass of beer. We are very close to it. And I do feel at times very cynical about the industry. I would even say jaded. I know you feel the same way because we have these conversations. And I think a lot of other people we talk to in the space feel the same way, especially you talk to someone that's been brewing beer for 15 years. And the reason for that is that being in this every day, constantly being exposed to, you know, through through the unfortunate stuff, the shitty side of the industry, the horrible sexual harassment news mm -hmm. that comes out, the garbage, tasteless branding that we are, are thankfully seeing less of, but does still exist. The hyped beer styles that make me cringe and yell at, at the sky, just the, the, the stuff that I look at and just don't understand from a category or beer or taste standpoint, uh, $30 four packs, for instance, I've been drinking crap beer since you know, 2004 or five now. So coming up on 20 years and, and I've forgotten how much fun it, I, I, I don't know if you ever think about this, Cody, but I've forgotten how much fun it was getting into beer all, all the, like the 18, whatever it was years ago now. 
you and I, you and I got into this at the same time. I mean, I, during college and right thereafter, as we graduated and found in Kodo, all we, all we, we drank way too much beer and it was craft beer was new and fun. It wasn't, it didn't even quite pop yet. Like it did in 2010, but there was still great beer around. I remember diesel oil stout. I don't even know who makes that. Someone in Indiana, Indiana. New Albania. No, not Albania. Sorry. Who, whomever makes diesel oil. Whoever stout. made that excellent stout. <laughs> Cody and I drank 50,000 of them back in the day. Guinness. Half cycle Osiris Pale Ale. Help me out here. What? Get, let, let's go back a little. I mean, bit. sitting in the newly opened Brewers Guild craft beer bar in downtown Indianapolis and watching a keg of zombie dust blow in in fifteen minutes <laughs> from on to empty. Yeah, I remember zombie dust. Yeah, zombie dust would they would tweet out that it's going out and ev- like it just like be everyone in the city would descend on Tomlinson Tap Room to get a pint of zombie dust. It was unreal. It was it was. You, you could you could feel the energy in the air, you know. We drank a ton of left-hand milk stout. Dreadnought was one that we did a lot of. Sierra Pale Ale, of course. Fat Tire, Dale's Pale Ale. Ranger IPA, non-Voodoo Ranger version. <laughs> Back when it yeah. was just like yeah, a... Vintage. It was like a state park-themed <laughs> beer or like a park ranger. I remember trying to brew a clone. I remember... Was it you or, or Steve that we tried to make a Ranger IPA clone... And it turned into like many of our homebrew uh, sour beer. <laughs> that one was probably Steve because I wouldn't even attempt. <laughs> I don't think I would even attempt. Do you remember Growler Fill Fridays at Sun King? I mean, we would. So it, it was like five dollar fill. It surely it wasn't four, right? It was five dollar Growler fills. Yeah, it was. It was five dollars for sixty four ounces of beer. We would bring like half a dozen. I'm I'm sure they were sparkling clean <laughs> Growlers <laughs> yeah. with us, and we'd go get six growlers of beer every Friday and we'd either come back to my house or go to back to the office and proceed to uh, make our way through all six of those growlers. That's probably why it took us a few years before we started actually running a successful business. (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) The we're way off the rails here. Let me, let me, let me final finish this, uh, this thought. Though it was fun to reminisce there. It's exciting to think about young people, even though there are less of them now. Uh, we'll talk about Gen Z specifically, but it's 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 exciting to think about young people who will start their own journey, that beer journey, you know, today or in the coming years, whenever they become legal age, uh, w- and when they find that one beer that changes everything. In in, in my uh, my nephew's case, the 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 coconut porter. Mm. Apparently that that hooked him. He's excited about it. That's it. and he's, he's just welcome, buddy. You got so much stuff to explore and enjoy. It's gonna be and and man, it's even bizarre too thinking about getting into this space now in twenty twenty two. I mean, there it's just that's weird too. I mean, there's just so much good beer out there. There's so much chaff as well, obviously, but there's just so many different things to get into. Mm. So Given everything we've outlined, changing demographics, drinking habits, and on and on, I think it's going to be tough to grab these new drinkers. I'm specifically talking about Gen Z here, but this this also includes reaching out, as we mentioned, to women, non-white folks, and older people as well. But reaching out to all of these people, that's our job, right? It, it's it's the job of, it's Kodo's job. It's our client's job. It's a job of any, it's, I'm going to guess a lot of the people right now, you, the listener, who are listening to this right now, 
it's it's your job. It's our job to stay relevant and to make stellar beer and to create the best customer experience possible and to include as many people as we can in, the, in this fun experience and to give new drinkers, give these new folks uh, who we can, frankly, who we can either recruit to this fun world or lose entirely. It's our job to give them a reason to care about this beautiful thing that we've built. It's, it's our job to give them a reason to care about beer. So yes, I am hopeful about the future of beer. Isaac, are you lining up a run for political office here? <laughs> uh, that'd be a short-lived run. Uh, God, no. <laughs> no, I'm not. We should insert like a MIDI file of the national anthem behind that rant. <laughs> Can we do that from a production standpoint? Uh, we don't have the budget for that. Uh, I'm I'm trying not to be, I want to, I want to give a real answer. I'm trying not to be cynical. I think the beer industry will be fine. I think we have a lot of things to work through in the coming decade. I think it's going to be tough, but I I think we're, I I think we're probably going to lose a few breweries, probably more breweries than we have over the last, you know, traditionally year over year, you lose so many. Let's just hope that it's the shitty breweries. I'll be very upfront. I hopefully the shitty breweries close and and it makes the industry better as a whole. So I, I completely talk too long, like a jerk. Do you, what do you, where, where are you on this? Are you, are you hopeful? Um, without basically retreading everything you just said, because I agree. Um, yeah, I feel good about the craft beer industry. A ton of challenges right now, but all the best stuff in the world comes from challenges. And I don't think it's anything the industry can't work through. They've showed incredible creativity and innovation. It's defined the industry and I expect that to continue. So yeah, I'm excited. Agreed. Okay. Cody, that, that's a long ass episode. <laughs> that, Ooh, uh, I'm falling asleep. Yeah. Yeah. No one's going to listen to the end of this. Uh, that, so that does it for this year's beer branding trends, community Q and a thank you to everyone who sent in questions, all 23.5 of you. There are a handful that we didn't get to here. Cody and I will spend the next few weeks directly responding to those. So we don't leave you guys hanging. Head over to kododesign.com to read this year's uh, annual Beer Branding Trends review. Join the newsletter at beerbrandingtrends.com if you want more. If you like this sort of insight and content that we're putting out, if you join the Beer Branding Trends newsletter, you will receive more up-to-the-minute monthly looks at the type of stuff that we talked about today. And for everyone else, I just want to take a moment and say thank you. Uh, Thank you. I don't don't know that we've done this yet, which is shame on us, Cody, but I want to thank everyone for listening and for subscribing to the Beer Branding Trends newsletter. I think we've got 57, 5,800 people on that now. Thanks to everyone that listens to this show. Uh, thank you to everyone who's left a review. Th- this has grown to be something really rewarding and enjoyable, and I look forward to sitting down and, and tackling it each month. And, and I, Cody, I feel like we never really slow down enough to just pause and say that. So thank you, everyone. Yeah, th- this has been a pleasure and a treat for us. All right, let's let's end this. We'll we'll be back here in a few weeks with non twenty twenty two beer branding trend stuff. We'll get right back into the the regular regular ideas for how you can build a stronger beer brand and beverage alcohol brand. So talk to y'all soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Beer Branding Trends. If you like what we're doing here, if you find this valuable, please rate and review us over on iTunes. And head over to beerbrandingtrends.com to join more than 5,000 subscribers who receive our monthly email newsletter covering strategy, currents, and actionable advice from Kodo Design, a branding firm on the front lines of beer and beverage branding. Take care. We'll catch back up with you soon.